So Isaiah chapter 42, starting at verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that cedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy, let them shout from the mountain tops. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war he st- stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace, I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labour, I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to missile images, you are our gods. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Well, as we approach this uh, remarkable passage of God's word, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father God, may uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you tonight, O Lord, our God, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, if you're uh, joining us for the first time tonight, then you've joined us, as Fee said, three sessions into our series in Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. And if that's the case, I do suggest you go and catch up on the previous sermons online. That'll really help as you get your head into this fantastic part of Scripture. And so for you who are new, and for those of us who have been sitting here in Isaiah from the beginning, I think it's always helpful for us to get um, our bearings as we come to this part of Isaiah. If you remember, the whole of the first section of Isaiah leading up to chapter 40 is posing one overarching question, and that is, how can faithless, unrighteous Jerusalem become once again faithful, righteous, and glorious? How can the Jerusalem that is spoken of in chapter 1, verse 21, 
that was once faithful and righteous but has become a whore and is filled with murderers, how can that faithless and righteous city become the promised city of chapter 1, verse 26? The restored city that will once again be called the city of righteousness and of faithfulness. In this tale of two cities, if you like, in Isaiah, how is God going to bring the dirty people of old Jerusalem into glorious Jerusalem 2.0, as Johnny put it two weeks ago? This gloriously new, gleaming, perfect Zion. Well, first, an immediate answer to that question, God is going to bring about an almighty exile, which will carry this small kingdom of Israel off into Babylon with her cities utterly laid waste, the people are going to be judged heavily for being so faithless. And this is the people that Isaiah is directly writing to, those in exile in Babylon, judged. And so for the people stuck in exile in Babylon, the question still stands. In even more desperation, how is God going to bring this dispersed, faithless, exiled people back to a new righteous Jerusalem? And it is the answer to that question that is woven all the way through Isaiah, but that we begin to see first really here introduced in the passages that we've been looking at, in the ringing words of chapter 40, verse 1, where we started our series, comfort, comfort, my people, says God to this dirty, ruined people in exile. Your warfare is ended and your iniquity is pardoned. In other words, says God, comfort, comfort my people in exile. I have a plan. I have a salvation plan. You will come out of exile, both physical exile, where war will be no more, and spiritual exile, where your sin will be no more. But what on earth does that kind of salvation plan look like? Well, in the passage we're looking at today, for the first time in the book of Isaiah, we are introduced to someone new, someone called the servant, someone who is God's servant. Today's passage is the first of four of servant songs in Isaiah that that sing of this servant. And to understand how this servant figure fits into God's salvation plan to get faithless, exiled Jerusalem back to new, gleaming Jerusalem, we have to ask ourselves two questions. First, what does this servant do? And secondly, who is this servant? How can he be identified? And those are, quite simply, as you'll see, our first two points. And on the service sheets, you'll see in front of you, first, the work of the servant, secondly, the identity of the servant, and third, the response to this servant. So first of all, let's get into it, the work of the servant. Read with me again, verses 1 to 4, found on page 602 of your Black Church Bibles, chapter 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Very simply, let's get straight into it. What is the main thing the servant will do? Well, very obviously, the role of the servant is to bring justice. 
And not just any justice, but an entirely unique justice. Verse 1, this servant will bring justice to the nations. That is, his justice will be a worldwide justice. A justice that will cross borders and dominate foreign countries. Verse 3, this servant will bring forth justice faithfully. That is, his justice will be a genuine justice. A real justice, not a justice built on prejudice, on partiality. It will be faithful, true, right, just. And verse 4, this servant will also establish this justice in the earth. That is, his justice is a permanent justice. A justice that isn't here one minute and gone the next. It's resolute, unflinching. It's a lasting justice. In short, this servant will bring about an incredible global justice, a justice that has never before been seen in the earth. The question we have to ask ourselves, however, is what is this justice? What does justice here in Isaiah 42 really mean? And this is an important question for us tonight, and we're going to have to work hard on this. For a simple reading of this justice that this servant brings would be to assume that he is bringing a a kind of worldwide social justice, as in governments and nations across the world will be under the kind rule of a a truly just leader, and and people will live in peace and harmony and under care, with equality and and fairness as, as principal characteristics. And to some extent, that's very true. The word for justice here in Hebrew is mishpat, and and mishpat very broadly does mean that kind of justice. And that's the kind of justice we see spoken of in Isaiah, um, verse 4 of chapter 2. Let me just read it to you. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's justice. This is a a picture of Jerusalem 2.0. There will be a social justice of international peace brought about by this servant. And it will be a truly remarkable thing where people are more bothered about farming and growing and feeding each other than they are about warring with each other. It's a wonderful thing. However, if we left the role of the servant to that sense of justice alone, we are radically misreading what is, I think, a profoundly more affecting job description of the servant. For there is more to the role of the servant than just bringing international peace. And this deeper role is hinted at in verse 4 of our chapter. Read that again with me. He, the servant, will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What is this justice linked with very specifically? It is linked with his law. And in massive swathes of the Old Testament, Psalm 119, Deuteronomy in particular, this is how mishpat, God's justice, is translated. It is nearly always translated in terms of God's law. For God's justice is not just his bringing international peace. It is more importantly his word of instruction and judgment over his people. That is what his law does. The servant's justice, then, can better be translated as his law-like judgment, if you like, a word spoken over his people that instructs people in the way they should go. That is God's justice. It is God's judgment, his law-like verdict, if you like, on who he is and on how humanity should live. 
Now read with me verse 4 again with that understanding of justice in mind. The servant will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established his justice, his law-like judgment in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Now where in these passages that we've been looking at over the past few weeks have we seen a verse very similar to that, to verse 4, where coastlands, that is another term for the nations of the earth, are waiting for God's law-like judgment. Well, it's strikingly similar to verse 1 of chapter 41, where we were last week. Read that again with me. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. The question is, what is the judgment that the coastlands are listening to in chapter 41? And how is it linked to the judgment delivered to the coastlands in chapter 42? Well, in chapter 41, as as Fee reminded us right at the beginning of this service, this this judgment revolves around this court case that we saw last week, if you remember. It is this court case in chapter 41 where these idols are placed in the dock, if you remember. And each idol, verse 21 and 23, is asked to foretell what is to come. Can they prove, in other words, they have a godlike ability to to change or predict future events? And none of them can. There is silence in the dock. And so God delivers his judgment over them. And what is his judgment? What is his verdict? Well, it is delivered brutally in verse 24 of chapter 41. Behold, says God to the idols, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. Indeed, an abomination is he who chooses you. In short, the judgment, the verdict that God delivers to the coastlands in chapter 41 is, idols are worthless. That's my judgment, says God. They leave you with nothing, and you will be an abomination if you choose to follow them. You see, if you remember from last week, this court case is all wrapped around the question of who do you trust when history is threateningly terrifying? Now, at the time of Isaiah under the kings that I mentioned in, in verse 1 of the book, history is going bananas. International treaties are being torn up, nations are being swept aside. And as God speaks this judgment, this verdict to the coastlands, to the nations of the earth, Israel, in the midst of terrifying political and international turmoil, is listening in as God is speaking to them. In other words, says God, through this court case, who do you trust, Israel, when world history seems to be upended? When wars are raging and threats to international harmony are real and terrifying, who do you trust? Idols? Well, my law-like judgment, my verdict, is that they are worthless. And they will leave you destitute. They will not help you. You see, this court case in chapter 41 ends on a truly devastating note. Where are the coastlands left in 41? Verse 24, with nothing, with less than nothing. Verse 28, there is no counsellor for them. There is no one to answer their calls for help. So, says God, behold, verse 29, idols are a delusion, their works are redundant, they are an empty wind. That is God's judgment over these idols. 
And this is the judgment, the verdict that is delivered to the coastlands. In 41.1, God is giving his ruling on the nation's approach to history. He is giving his judgment as to where strength should really be found. He is giving his verdict over who you should really trust. He is giving his call on who the nations should really turn to in times of incredible trouble. And it's not idols, says God. That's my verdict. Now, welcome to chapter 42. For how does this judgment in 41 tie into the law-like judgment in 42? Well, it is that judgment that idols are worthless and that God should be trusted. That is the justice that is spoken of in chapter 42 that this servant now delivers to the rest of the world. That is the work of the servant. In other words, it is this judgment, this verdict, that idols are worthless that will be made known to the nations, verse 1. It will be a worldwide judgment that is made known. It is this judgment, this verdict, that idols will leave you in utter darkness and silence, which will be told faithfully, verse 3. It will be a judgment that is true and verifiable and unchanging. It is also this judgment, this verdict, that idols cannot be trusted at all, which will be established in the earth, verse 4. It will be a judgment that is unyielding, long-lasting, never-ending, always at work. This is the job of the servant, to reveal to the entire world that they have been living a complete lie. It is the job of the servants to help the nations realize that they are in total darkness if they follow idols. It is the job of this servant to remind people who they really should trust in times of extraordinary difficulty. Not idols, but the God of heaven. And with all that in mind, so the rest of the servant's work, found in the remainder of his job description from verses 1 to 9 in our passage today, makes perfect sense. For what the servant continues to do in the rest of his, this chapter is everything that the idols could not do. Whereas the idols are in utter darkness and in complete silence in 41 and leave people in darkness and silence, what does the servant bring? Verse 6. This servant will be a light. This is God talking to his servant now. I will give you, servant, as a covenant to the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. This verdict, in other words, that is to be delivered to the nations of the earth, will open eyes and bring darkened people into life. The idols leave humanity desperate with nothing, blind, in the dark, in prison. The judgment of the servant, the words of the servant, the justice of the servant will open eyes to that very reality and point those awakened eyes to the living, active God of heaven. And what does the living, active God of heaven look like in the light of all of this? Verse 5, we see God declare that he is the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. God created the earth and everything in it. No idol can do that. Verse 9, we see that God is able to bring the former things he spoke of to pass. He is able to say more new things that will come to pass, not least the message of this servant. God dictates history, in other words. 
What he says is true and will happen. As the court case showed in chapter 41, no idol can do that. It is also the job of the servant to warn people what not following this judgment looks like. Verse 17 of our passage. But they are turned back and utterly put to shame, those who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. That is the job of the servant, to point the nations away from idols and to God, and to warn people that not listening to this judgment will bring real shame. As people hear this judgment, this justice of the servants, they see for the first time what idols are really like. And so their eyes are opened to the truth. Their hearts and minds are enlightened. They see that they are living a lie that leads to shame, and they see the truth about God and put their trust instead in him. That is what the servant's job is. And so in verse 8... In his summary of the word, the judgment that the the servant will deliver over the nations of the earth, God says, well, it makes sense, doesn't it? That I would give my glory to no other, not to any idol. I am the Lord. That is my name. This is my servant. This is my international, faithful, established, enlightening judgment that he will carry, and entire nations will be transformed by it. Idols will leave you in darkness, but the servant's judgment will bring you to light. And so as we sit in that reality, the next question is obvious. Who is this servant? And how do we identify him? This is our second point, the identity of the servant. As I said at the beginning, this is the the first of four servant songs in Isaiah, and and we'll go through all four of them as we will over the course of the the series. And as we do, you'll notice that more and more of the servant is being revealed. And with this being the first, it makes sense that we're, we're only given initial glimpses as to what this servant will look like. And up until now in Isaiah, there is in fact only one character that really fits the description of a servant, and that is Israel herself, the people of God. In Isaiah 41, verse 8, God says very clearly, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. You see, we're meant to get to this point and begin to read Israel into this description in 42. For Israel was definitively God's chosen servant. It was Israel who was meant to be a light to the nations. Exodus details the work that Israel was to do in telling people about who Yahweh was and living so distinctly people would call on the name of the Lord. But the very fact that Israel is in exile is a pretty good indicator that they were utter failures when it came to being a light to the nations and bringers of God's law and judgment and justice on the earth. In fact, look at the very first verse in the next week's passage, verse 18 of chapter 42. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messengers whom I send. This is Israel, blind and deaf. It can't be them. It must be someone else. It could be Cyrus. For in answer to our very first question of the evening, it is Cyrus who physically saves Israel from exile. It is Cyrus who brings literally the good news to the people of God. We met Cyrus last week. Read with me again. Chapter 41, 25 and 27. I stirred up one from the north, says God, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give Jerusalem a herald of good news. 
This is the description of Cyrus. Whom God stirred up from the north, who was to be to Jerusalem a herald of good news. Cyrus was the man who brought the good news to the people of Israel that they were allowed to return to Jerusalem. He signed the edict the people were freed. In other words, God stirred up his servant Cyrus to save Israel. But is he the servant here in 42? Well, no. Because of one small but very important detail about God's servant that we've yet to focus on, and we know that's found in verses 2 and 3 of this, of this chapter. For the servant of God will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Who is this servant? Well, this servant seems to be quite quiet and highly concerned with protecting weak and frail things. That's not how Cyrus is described. Cyrus is a smasher. He smashes and tramples and treads the mighty. The servant barely raises his voice and instead protects and defends the pathetic and the weak. The two are completely different. The servant isn't Israel, though it was meant to be, but they failed. They're blind and they're deaf. The servant isn't brutal Cyrus. He saves Israel, but only physically and temporarily and barbarically. The servant is very obviously someone who does not fail and who is not like the rulers of the earth, but rather someone who deploys this light-giving judgment and justice in the most unassuming way imaginable. In humility, in gentleness, and with a great love for the broken. You see... We all know, don't we, that the servant is so very obviously the promised Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who fulfills all of those descriptions. The servant is the one whom John spoke of as being the light of the world. The servant is the one whom Mark spoke of as, as being the bringer of the gospel, the real good news that was to be delivered to Israel. The servant is the one whom Matthew and Luke spoke of as they quote this very passage of scripture, these very two verses, after Jesus has stooped into the dirt to heal all those who were gathered, as we read in Matthew 12, as he physically fulfilled this description of the servant, as he physically saved the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, the outcast, the broken, the, the insignificant and the weak. But Jesus doesn't just fulfill this role of the servant physically. He also fulfills it spiritually. For he doesn't just save people who are physically broken, he saves people who are spiritually broken. And if you remember from our very first question of this evening, that is truly important for God's salvation plan. Isaiah 40 verse 1, For in this new Zion Israel's warfare has ended, but also her iniquity is pardoned. You see, it's not enough for the people to be saved from their physical plight. They need to be saved from their spiritual plight. Indeed, to get people of old Jerusalem into new Jerusalem, they can't just be physically moved into a new city. They need to be made clean and sinless to live in a glorious, righteous city. You see, it can't just be a Cyrus rescue that brings Israel back to new Jerusalem. It must be a Messiah servant rescue that brings Israel and the nations back to new, pure, holy Jerusalem. 
And so as Jesus physically defends the bruised reeds and, the, and protects the smoldering wicks, he does so on a spiritual level. As he's hoisted up on a wooden cross, as he is led silently, not screaming aloud in the streets, protesting his innocence. As he is scarred and scorned, as he is tormented and tortured, as he is manhandled and murdered, as he is forsaken and forgotten, all for the sake of being able to bear the iniquity, the incredible weight of sin, that the bruised reeds and smouldering wicks of broken people of all nations and of Israel that have hanging over them iniquity that will not allow them into this glorious new Zion. The servant takes it all on himself. Jesus dies the most humiliating death so that he can fulfill truly the role of the servant. The servant whose judgment and law and justice in this passage screams of authority and kingship, but is delivered in humility and suffering. The servant in this passage who will unrelentingly bind himself as a covenant between God and man and will do so never breaking his side of the bargain, never failing, never making a mistake. An act that screams of incredible power, but is delivered in such incredible weakness. The servant in this passage who will bring light and life to all nations, who will raise the dead, who will bring immortality to light, who will banish darkness and sickness for an eternity, an act that screams of his being, God Almighty, but is delivered in profound, deep darkness in an act of humiliating public death. You see, the immediate rescue plan the immediate salvation plan that God had told Israel would happen, the promise that her war is ended and that they will be brought back home, is fulfilled in the immediate sense by Cyrus. But he can do nothing about the real heart of Israel's problem, and that is the problem of their faithfulness and their unrighteousness. There had to be another rescuer. There had to be another servant. There had to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You see, what does the delivery of this judgment, this justice, in Isaiah 42 truly look like? The judgment that idols are worthless and that God can be trusted with even the traumatic effects of sin is delivered by the servant, Jesus Christ, through his words as he speaks the gospel to the ends of the earth. Through his death and his resurrection as he takes on himself the sins of the earth. That is the nature of this justice that he is to speak out to the ends of the earth. This justice is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the first time tonight, as we lift up our heads a bit from the passage and look at where we are sitting this very night, can we begin to see just what this passage means for us today? For is it not true that Scotland in Isaiah 42 is quite definitively a coastland, a foreign pagan nation at the edge of the world. And do we not sit here tonight as a people who have been radically enlightened, whose eyes have been opened, whose lives have been transformed from darkness into inexpressible life, because the servant made known his judgment to us that idols are worthless, that idols were drawing us into deeper darkness, that idols have imprisoned us. 
that we should instead turn to the living God and trust him. And we have received that judgment, that knowledge of light and life, all thanks to the judgment that Christ, the servant, delivered to us through his words, through his gospel, through the power of his death and his resurrection. You see, this is us. We are quite literally the beneficiaries of this incredible judgment. All thanks to the servant. What of you, what of those of you who are who aren't Christians here tonight? One of the very big barriers, I think, to becoming a Christian and receiving the gospel is that you feel too worthless, that you are too far gone, you've sinned once too many times. God would never approach you. Oh no, says God. Oh no. Consider my servant. He will not crush the bruised reed or snuff out the the faint wick. For those of us who are Christians, who almost feel like we are done, oh, says God, consider my servant. He will not crush you, bruised reed. He will not snuff you out, faltering wick. This is the justice that is in chapter 42. The word of the Lord that has been given to us. This justice is the judgment of God that we have received. This justice is the verdict of heaven that that idols are worthless. This justice is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ wrapped up in him who delivers it and in him who died for it that has been given even to pagan Scotland so that we would be enlightened and turn to him and receive light and really live. And so now be ready to enter new Jerusalem. For in Christ, not only are we not in physical exile anymore, but we are no longer in spiritual exile. As our iniquity is now pardoned. And if that is the case, and it really is, what should our immediate response be to this servant? Well, surely it should be the sung response of ecstatic praise that the coastlands, the nations of the earth will sing when they hear this wonderful judgment of light and life that the servant has given them. This is the response to the servant, our last point. What is our response to the servant then? Praise God. We know the truth because of his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is exactly the response of the coastlands and the nations in 10 to 17 of our passage. Sing to the Lord then a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Those are the pagan nations singing now. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The nations knowing the truth having been enlightened with the knowledge that they have been living a lie and they didn't know it, the fact that they now see idols for what they really are and see God for who he really is, the one who can really be trusted, they can't help but fall over themselves in overwhelming thankfulness and praise and glory to the creator God of eternity. How kind of God 
to send his servant. The nations now know what Israel always knew, but just weren't great at telling or showing. The fact that we are in Scotland, that we know about the living God and sing about the living God as we'll do now, we know that Jesus is at work, that this prophecy is being fulfilled, that God can foretell what is going to happen. This judgment was delivered to the nations and we are brought to life because of it. Does it not make sense then that our knee-jerk reaction should be simply to burst into delightful praise? Add an incredible saving God thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ, his chosen servant. And as we close, as we get to the end of this song of praise, the Lord finishes this incredible introduction to his servant by reminding the people again, bringing it back to them in exile, who he really is. He is the living God, verse 13, a mighty man who will continue to fight for his people. He is, verse 14, he will, verse 14, cry out loudly on behalf of his people like a woman in childbirth, screaming for them. He will, verse 15, lay low mountains and hills. That's in reference to his taking his people out of physical exile. There'll be nothing stopping them, in other words. All natural barriers will be removed. And he is a God, verse 16, who continues to guide his people, open blind eyes, and will never forsake them. And now as we close, we can take in the whole sweep of chapter 41 and chapter 42 together. 41 verse 24, Behold, idols, you are nothing, and your work is nothing, an abomination who chooses you. 41 29, Behold, all you who follow idols, they are a delusion, their works are nothing, their metal images are empty wind. Who do we turn to? 42 verse 1. Behold, says God, my servant.